and welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sheila Balfort, and I'm very excited that I get to share and open God's Word with you this morning. Um, and we're just going to trust that whatever goes wrong while I'm up here is all part of the sermon, okay? Because it's about being free from perfectionism. So there we go. All right. So I want to welcome everybody who's here this morning and everybody who's watching online. So glad that you could join us. So I'll start off with a bit of a story. Um, I recently went back to my hometown in Massachusetts for my 22 and a half year high school reunion. For some reason, that half year really counts. So uh, this weekend was special because it also happened to be my 40th birthday. So I flew to Boston on Friday night and stayed with uh, my best friend, Mary, from high school. And we were having a blast. Uh, the next day, Mary and I drove to Wilbraham for the reunion. Uh, but we wanted to go a little bit early because we wanted to drive around and kind of just take a drive down memory lane and see all the places that we used to go. So, um, and reminisce about all our years that we shared there together. So we drove past each of our houses and our church that we went to together and all the schools that we went to. We went to elementary school and middle school and high school together. Um, the pond we used to swim at, the downtown and the library. Lots of memories came up. Some were good. Some were bad. I remembered going to church, all the sleepovers we'd had, the school dances, the football games, uh, serving in the bell choir with my dad, uh, driving past my house. Um, I, I saw all the, because it was fall, so I saw all the leaves that were coming down, and I remembered all the forced labor of my parents when we had to rake all the leaves and have a fire and burn all the brush every fall, um, which was awesome because I got to do the same thing to my kids yesterday, so... Uh, I remembered uh, figure skating and learning how to drive, getting my driver's license, hitting a police car within a month of getting my driver's license. And if you want to hear more about that, you have to come ask me after the service. Uh, what, what, one thing that stood out for me, though, was the mindset I had as a teen and heading into adulthood. It was the mindset that I needed to be perfect, get good grades, always be on time, always dress the right way, say the right thing, use proper table manners. There's a right way and there is a wrong way to do things, so always make sure you're doing it the right way. As an adult, this translated into perfectionism, which brings me to our topic for today, the need many of us feel to be perfect. In preparation for this morning, I went on a walk to Starbucks last Monday. And my husband, Greg, he always knows when I need to hear from Jesus because I walk to Starbucks. <laughs> and uh, so off I went to Starbucks and I sat there for a few hours trying to pray and write things out and kind of expecting that I would get things mostly written while I was there, uh, but I didn't really get anywhere at all. And so I kind of gave up and started walking home again. And as I was walking home, finally, I got somewhere. God gave me the title for this morning's sermon. The title is The Root and fruit of perfectionism. 
and subtitle because as Pastor Josh would appreciate, every good sermon needs a good subtitle as well. So uh, the subtitle is How Free is Free. So when I got home, I told Greg about the title and he kind of chuckled and he said, well, how long did it take for you to come up with the perfect title for a sermon about being perfect? (laughs) Well, it took a long time, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, But once I had the title, things started to come together. So I just wanna start with some prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for all of us that are able to be here this morning and for everybody who's able to watch online. And I just pray that you will, uh, that you will use me, that I would be the vessel for you to speak to each heart, uh, whatever it is that you want to impart to, to each of us this morning. And I, I just want to declare my dependence on you and I'm trusting you for this. And so, uh, yeah, I thank you for this opportunity. In your name we pray, amen. If you struggle with perfectionism, I want you to know that you're in good hands or in good company as well. Uh, I think Moses was a perfectionist. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. God appeared, to, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he wanted Moses to go back to Egypt to rescue the Israelites from their captivity. Remember, these were the same people that Moses had tried to rescue 40 years earlier but he tried to do it in his own way and ended up needing to run for his life. He went into hiding in the mountains and became a shepherd, withdrawing from his people and calling and the calling that God had for his life. So here we are in Exodus three and God is calling Moses to return to the people of Egypt. And he says, therefore come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that I, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses, so Moses ran away from his failures in Egypt and he's questioning God here. I imagine he's feeling afraid and about what might happen if you were to go back. He says, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He doesn't feel qualified. He is doubting his capabilities and afraid of failing. It kind of reminds me of when I first started counseling at Crossways and I would say to Ross, um, okay, what do I say here? Okay, and what do I say if they say this? And then what do I say? But what if they say this? I wanted to be super sure that I was going to get it right exactly the first time and I was terrified of making a mistake. In the verses following where we just read, God continues to talk about who he should say is sending him. He goes into detail about who to talk to and what to say. God even tells him how the elders and the Pharaoh are gonna respond. God tells Moses of the miracles and wonders he will do and how they will be set free and that they will even plunder the Egyptians. But Moses isn't convinced, he keeps going. Uh, So this is Exodus four, verse one to five. Then Moses said, 
What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Moses is still worried about what the others might say to him. Think about it. God has appeared to him in a burning bush. The voice of God is talking to him and telling him where he should go, what he should do, giving him examples of all the miracles he would perform. And here is Moses still questioning God, not convinced that God is going to do what he says he will do. And God continues on. He even performed a miracle on Moses, turning his arm leprous like the snow and then healing it again. And he told him even more of the signs that God would do through Moses in Egypt. I think we are starting to see that Moses was very concerned about getting it right. Or one could say he wanted to be perfect. So what does it really mean to be a perfectionist? From the outset, I wouldn't have really thought of myself as a perfectionist, just going off stereotypes. I'm not a super high achiever. I'm not overly critical of others. Just don't ask Greg about that. Um, I'm not that organized and not super ambitious about my goals. However, the more I read about this need to be perfect, the more called out I feel. According to Google, it is a person's concern with striving for flawlessness and perfection and is accompanied by critical self-evaluations and concerns regarding others' evaluations. Perfectionists strain compulsively and unceasingly toward unattainable goals. They measure their self-worth by productivity and accomplishments to the point that some tendencies even lead to distraction from other areas of life. Perfectionists pressure themselves to achieve unrealistic goals that inevitably lead to disappointment. Perfectionists tend to be harsh critics of themselves, their work, and their failure, failure to meet their own expectations. So these unattainable goals don't really need to be fantastic or exotic by any means. Maybe there are even goals that you have that nobody else would really even notice. So what did my goals look like? I don't think I always recognized this, but really it was to be perfect to avoid failure at all costs. Pretty simple, right? Why? Because if I fail, that means I'm a failure. And if I'm a failure, that means that I'm not good enough. And if I'm not good enough, then I'm going to feel shame. And I don't like feeling shame. So just be perfect all the time, then I will never feel shame. That's all. Pretty simple. Problem being with this is there's no real definition. What does it actually mean to be perfect? How do I actually get there? And the only way that I knew that I wasn't achieving this perfection was that I was actually experiencing shame. So it's kind of a rotten place to be left in. Um, and this need to be perfect has its own roots. And many of us have grown up in a home that celebrated achievements. Um, in fact, I would say almost all of us, right? We all have, have had expectations put on us. Now, is it bad to have expectations? No, not at all. Um, but what can happen is that we get the feeling that we need to meet these ex expectations or exceed them in order to be loved, get good grades, look a certain way, always behave. 
As an adult, we can look back on childhood and know that our parents always loved us, but our child mind interpreted the rules we had to live by as the standards we needed to meet or exceed in order to get love. We associate what we, what we do with our worth and value. Now I need to prove myself in order to gain acceptance. And the classic psychology question, is it nature or nurture? It's probably both. Uh, you probably have been born with certain personality traits that make you more prone to perfectionism. And likely there were some events that you grew up with that kind of nurtured this out in you, right? Uh, so whether our experience was, was growing up, whatever our experience was growing up, we all have come away from our childhood with certain beliefs about ourselves and our situation in life. Whether it be from our church background, our parents, our school, our friends, we learn that we need to perform in order to be accepted. So let's get back to, uh, to my story. Uh, after high school, I went to university and I, I started a major in studio art. And I never really felt like I fit in with the artist crowd. I just wasn't artsy enough whatever that means. So in second year, I changed my major to one that seemed more suitable. That way I could keep my feelings of being an imposter at school kind of under control. It ended up being a good thing because it was at this time that I started to pursue the, goal, the call that God had placed on my heart to become a counselor. However, I had a couple of failures that confirmed what I already believed about myself. I don't actually fit in here either. I better not even try this one in case I fail again. Well, I got married shortly afterward and we started our family almost right away. So I kind of just threw myself into the role that I was in. I was determined to make sure that I was good, a good enough wife and that my house always looked acceptable. As time went on, I wanted Greg and the kids to help with the chores, but I was always kind of resentful that I needed to go back and fix whatever they had done. I might as well just do it myself. I wanted to be a good mom, make sure the kids are well-behaved, cook well-balanced and nutritious meals using natural and organic ingredients, no sugar, no bad fats, make sure the kids have enough outside time and not too much screen time, get them involved in at least one extracurricular activity, teach them about Jesus, no pressure there, do fun crafts, don't lose your temper. Did I mention make sure they behave? After all, that is a reflection of how well you're doing as a mom. The problem was that all of my efforts worked some of the time. That's right. Sometimes it worked and I was, you know, living up to these expectations, which only fed into the lie that I was believing that if I just tried hard enough, if I just kept striving, kept working, I could actually be good enough. But then I would fail. And then there would be more lies ready to attack. See, you really are not good enough. You're a failure. You should just give up. Cue the shame. Now, as perfectionists, we, we learned about what the roots are, but we also know that there is fruit that comes out of perfectionism. So these would be the behaviors that we start to see. For someone who struggles with being perfect, there are certain behaviors we might see. In my research for this Sunday, I was reading some articles about perfectionism, and I just want to start by saying that I'm speaking to myself here just as much as I'm speaking to you this morning. Number one, this need to be perfect means that I will have an excessive need for control, which can lead to anxiety when, feeling, when the feeling of control is taken away from us. We become micromanagers as a way of protecting ourselves, 
Um, because controlling others is a way of self-protection. I feel that I can't trust anyone else to handle it. What if they feel fail? Then it means that I have failed. Has someone ever told you, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself? Well, that was me. I felt overworked and exhausted, but didn't feel I could let anyone else, anyone else help me with the responsibilities at home. This was how I found my worth, after all. Number two, we have all or nothing thinking. This is a common trap, and it involves your tendency to see a situation as either black or white, right or wrong. For example, if you're trying to lose weight and you eat one cookie, you might think, I have blown my diet completely. And I would say that I have definitely said those very words after eating just one cookie. Um, defensiveness. This is number three, per defensiveness. Perfectionists often get very defensive when they are criticized because they will interpret criticism as a statement of their worth or ability. We have high expectations of ourselves and others. This means I will easily find fault with myself and others. Perfectionists tends to be overcritical of any misstatement, misspelling, or flaw, and see it as vitally important to correct people when they make a mistake. As an aside, if you need any proofreading done, just come see me. Uh, number four, we become inflexible. Don't change plans on me, okay? Because then it might not go according to the scenario that I have worked out in my mind, which would mean that I might fail, which would mean that I would experience shame. Therefore, stick to the plan and do not deviate. My husband Greg and I are so different in this area. Uh, for example, when, when Greg drives somewhere, we will normally take one route to get there and then one completely different route to get home again. And it sometimes drives me crazy. And you might say, why does he do this? Well, I mean, I've asked him that. And uh, it's just for the adventure of it. He just, you know, spice it up. Why would you go the same way when you can go somewhere different on the way home? Uh, and it kind of drives me crazy because I like to follow the correct route. That's right, there's a right route and there's a wrong route <laughs> to get to the destination. So uh, why would I deviate from the plan? and risk going the wrong way, or risk that it would be a less efficient route. So always stick to the plan. Once you find what works, just go with it, okay? Number five. And finally, we will withdraw and isolate ourselves. I had this happen to me recently. I met with a friend a few weeks ago, and we had a really nice chat. And, but later on that evening, I, um, I was walking the dogs, and all of a sudden, I got a hit with this truckload of shame of like, oh, when I said this, I wonder if she thought this. Oh no, I hope she didn't get hurt or offended by that. So I texted her to apologize and kind of left it at that. Uh, but I was still feeling all this shame all night and all morning. I was just struggling with like, oh man, uh, she's gonna hate me now. I'm the worst person ever. And um, I was even, I was driving to work and I go through lots of uh, rural roads and I actually, I saw this tractor, some, a farmer out in a tractor and I thought, that's what I need to do. I need to become a farmer and I can sit in a tractor by myself all day. That way I can love people by subtraction meaning I can't hurt people if I just isolate myself from them. Ultimately, this fruit and of this need, will, we will always need to be perfect, means that I am living under law. Maybe it's not the Mosaic law, 
but it's some standard of performance where I'm going to find my value and my worth. For me, it's the law of Sheila. What do you think your laws look like? Are you living by a set of standards or expectations that you need to live up to in order to be accepted? Now, again, it's not wrong to have standards or expectations, but if you're measuring yourself by whether or not you're reaching those expectations, then you might be living under law. The problem with this is that we will never be able to live perfectly and righteous. So there's a poem by Shel Silverstein that illustrates this. Anyone, Shel Silverstein, where the sidewalk ends? Yes. One of my favorite poets growing up. Um, all right. He has this poem called Almost Perfect. And it goes, almost perfect, but not quite. Those were the words of Mary Hume at her seventh birthday party, looking round the ribbon room. This tablecloth is pink and white. Almost perfect, but not quite. Almost perfect, but not quite. Those were the words of grown-up Mary, talking about her handsome beau, the one she wasn't going to marry. Squeezes me a bit too tight. Almost perfect, but not quite. Almost perfect, but not quite. Those were the words of old Miss Hume, teaching in the seventh grade, grading papers in the gloom. Late at night, up in her room, they never crossed their T's just right. Almost perfect, but not quite. 98, the day she died, complaining about the spotless floor, people shook their heads inside. Guess she'll like heaven more. Up went her soul on feathered wings, out the door, up out of sight. Another voice from heaven came. Almost perfect, but not quite. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying this poem is theologically accurate by any stretch, okay? That's, let's just get that out of the way. Uh, but what I do want to get from this poem is that Mary was actually living like a modern-day Pharisee. She spent her whole life living by law and standards of her own making. And uh, Mary was missing out on experiencing freedom and life in Jesus. And I can imagine she was pretty miserable. Can anyone else relate? Or is it just me? How do you feel when you're holding yourself to impossible standards? How do the people around you feel? Never good enough. Never happy with the people around me. Always feeling like I need to do more. I can never relax because of all the things I should be doing. So let's go now to Romans, and I want to look at what Paul says in Romans 9 about the Israelites. Chapter 9, verse 30 to 32. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. So the Gentiles were they achieved the righteousness that we're all striving for, not because of what they were doing, but because of the fact that they just trusted by faith in Christ. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So the Israelites, or we could say the Pharisees even, were living their lives trying to be perfect, right? They were looking to their righteousness through the law. They thought that if they just measured up and kept the law perfectly, that that would mean that they were righteous. Um, but they didn't achieve it. They didn't arrive at that. 
they had put their hope in their own performance. And you might be saying, but doesn't Jesus actually say that we need to be perfect? I mean, that's what Matthew 5.48 says, right? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's true. God does require that we are perfect. And we all certainly do not act perfectly, but that's why Jesus came. He lived, he died, and he rose again to set us free from the need to be perfect. He was perfect on our behalf. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin so that we could be righteous in him. Being righteous means that you're justified. You are made right. One might even say you're perfect. Not because you have acted perfectly or are flawless, but just because of Jesus and his perfect act of righteousness. Paul goes on to talk about the Pharisees in the beginning of Romans 10. They were zealous for the law because they thought that by keeping the law perfectly, that they could achieve perfection in God's eyes and in everyone else's. They didn't recognize that their salvation and righteousness could only be accomplished through faith in Christ. So let's look now in Romans 10 verses 1 to 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As believers, we have been set free from the law system that says we need to perform in order to find our worth and our value. We are free from the law in our own lives. It also sets us free. It also sets the people free around us from the standards we're holding them to. It changes the atmosphere we are living in when everyone is free to be themselves through Christ. And I think this is so important. So I'm going to say it again. It changes the atmosphere when we have set ourselves free from the law. You've probably heard the phrase of mama isn't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Well, there's a little bit of truth to that, um, that you, I think that sometimes we underestimate the influence that we have on our families and our friends and everywhere we go. Um, you know, Paul talks about how we are a fragrant aroma, right? Um, and I, I don't want to say that, you know, that you have to be happy all of the time because then you're going to change it. But it's, it's not about being happy, but it's about having this attitude of submission to God. And that attitude is going to change the atmosphere around you where you're not striving for your own performance. Um, because the more you're striving for your own perfection, the more the people around you are going to be held under that perfection as well. And so we want to set ourselves free from the need to be perfect um, and it's, it's going to change your environment. It's going to change the atmosphere. So how do we break free from perfectionism? Recognize that you are already perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life on your behalf. He died and rose again, and you are in Christ. Therefore, you have been made perfect in Christ. Christ is living in me as me 
Christ is living in you as you. You're still you, but you're a perfect version. And the goal isn't to be perfect in action, but to rest in my perfection as a new creation. You are perfect. Let's look at 1 John 4, 17. First John 4, 17 says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Think about all the things that God is, right? That Jesus says. Uh, he's righteous. He's holy. He's loved. He's accepted. He's a, and we, as he is, so are we. So as Jesus is perfect, so are we in this world. Now, Galatians is a really great book to read if you want to read more about our freedom in Christ and freedom from the law. So I'd encourage you to read through that one. Um, but one of the verses, one of my favorite verses in Galatians is Galatians 3, verse 3. Galatians 3, 3 says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is that what we're doing today? We know that we are saved by faith and yet we go on living in the flesh striving for perfection in the flesh in order to prove our value. Are we so foolish? So how free is free? Subtitle. Attending my high school reunion was such a surreal experience. As my friend Mary and I were heading up the stairs into the party room for heading up to this reunion, I had this moment of panic climbing the stairs. All the blood drained from my brain. I'm like, what am I doing here? Why am I about to, why am I going to have dinner with all these people, virtually strangers that I haven't seen in 22 and a half years? I felt sick, uh, but I knew, I knew I had to go in there because there was one friend who was counting on me to be there, so I couldn't turn back. So we walked into the room and it was great. I mean, within 30 seconds, there was somebody who came up to greet us and hadn't seen her in that long, but she still was very kind. and. Um, and everything all of a sudden it just felt fine. And I just know that that was God's grace for me in that moment. And I spent the next three hours talking to people that I barely knew, getting caught up on the last 20 years. Uh, my friend Mary and I, because it was my birthday, I really wanted to dance on my birthday. We, so I actually, Mary and I went out on the dance floor and got everybody else to join us, which was kind of cool. Um, and I realized how much of a work God had done in me since high school. In the past, I would have put so much thought and stress into making sure that I was all put together and that I said the right things and I looked the right way. I was actually even the most underdressed person there and I didn't even care. I was free to talk and get reacquainted with these people and to just let Jesus live and love through me. I came away from that weekend feeling so thankful for the freedom I have in Jesus. I didn't need their acceptance. I didn't need to be perfect, but God wasn't done with me yet because he had more to show me in the coming weeks. I attended a retreat at the beginning of November and I was scheduled to, sh to share a talk on the Friday and then to lead communion on Sunday morning. The talk on Friday went well. Um, I had every word written out, like I said, perfection, right? I had poured over every detail of this talk that I was gonna give and I had sure, made sure that I had it just the way I wanted it to be. And so the question is, was I trusting Jesus for the talk? Absolutely, I would say I was. I knew that Jesus and I had written it together and that he was going to have his way with it. 
So I felt, and it was, and it was great. Um, when I was finished sharing my talk, I went back to my seat and someone shared what God had taught him through me. I was encouraged, but also struck by the fact that the Holy Spirit showed him a concept that I hadn't actually said. I was like, oh man, I wish I'd said that, but that's cool. Um, it wasn't exactly what I shared, but it kind of added to that. And so I realized that God had used my words, but it was his spirit that was going to speak to the hearts of each person there. Well, that took the pressure off for the rest of the weekend, for the most part. <laughs> I was fine that I had, it was fine that I had poured over the details, but it wasn't the perfection of the words that spoke to their heart. It was the Holy Spirit through me. But God didn't stop there. On the days leading up to the weekend, God had told me to hold off on preparing communion for Sunday, for Sunday morning. This was almost more than my little perfectionist heart could take. I wasn't supposed, God had told me I wasn't supposed to have it typed out word for word. I wasn't supposed to know exactly what I was going to say ahead of time. I was reluctant, but I trusted that God would give me the words to share on the weekend. So I waited all the way until Saturday night. Pretty good, right? As I crawled into bed, I scribbled down some notes on half a sheet of paper. It wasn't even a whole sheet of paper. It was just a half a sheet of paper. I thought I was doing really well. And uh, I tucked it in my Bible and I went to bed satisfied there. I trusted God all the way until Saturday night. And I was going to wing it with my tiny note. Well, the next morning I arrived at the chapel. I went to pull out my tiny note uh, to review what I was going to say. And lo and behold, the paper was missing. It was nowhere to be found. All I had left with this was this piece that God knew what he was doing. I kind of felt like he was like, yeah, yeah, I told you, I wanted you to wait. And um, I, I, but I had this piece that I knew that he, that I was going to trust him for the words to say. So I got up and I shared from my heart with the ladies that were there. It wasn't perfect. And there were things that I inevitably forgot to say, but I know that God used it. He spoke to the ladies' hearts, not because I had the perfect speech prepared, but because his spirit was at work through me. I still don't know what happened to that paper. I went back to my room and I tore apart everywhere. I, it's gone. God took it. Um, and I, so th this morning when I got up, I just had to check to make sure that this was here. <laughs> it was, thankfully. But God can be cheeky sometimes. So um, anyways, I have my notes. So. Uh, so here's what God showed me this weekend, that weekend. Though I have been experiencing a lot of freedom in my life, there is always more freedom available to us. This brings us back to our friend Moses. So let's turn to Exodus chapter four again. Again, he started questioning God. And I've kind of lost track of how many times he's gone back to God to question him about all this. But anyways, uh, Moses chapter, Exodus chapter four, verses 10 to 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. God says to Moses multiple times in this passage that he would be with him and he would give him the words to say. He's reminding Moses of his sovereignty here. Moses thinks God is a little crazy to want to work through him. And I can relate to that. 
and that he should be, he should go off and find someone else. But God knows better because he's God. So does that mean that Moses got it perfectly every time when he spoke? Not at all. If God wanted it to be perfect, he would do it himself. But he chooses to work in and through us because he desires relationship and intimacy with us. And as an aside, if we think back to uh, one of the earlier passages we looked at um, where he's questioning it and God says, what do you have in your hand? He says, I have this staff. And God uses what we have before us to, to work through us. And I just think that's so cool. Um, God wants to be a unique expression of Christ to the world through each of his individual children, mistakes and warts and all. It's not about perfection. It's about trust. When we are willing to step out in faith to trust Jesus to live through us, we're showing him that we are also trusting him with the outcome of our faith in him. It's no longer my problem, but it's Jesus's problem. And he's going to work it out in my life. It may mean success. It may mean failure, but it definitely means that I get to experience Christ living in me. Perfect isn't always better, and it may not be God's plan. For a long time, I had been believing that I had complete freedom to fail and that my worth wasn't tied to my, my success. And that is awesome. And I'm so thankful for that. I believed, you know, it's okay to fail, but isn't it still better to get it perfect? For God, I mean, so that he can further his kingdom better. I realized I haven't always been trusting God with my failures. Maybe fa because I think failure would have meant that I wasn't trusting God, right? If I had got it right, then God could use me better. But the reality is freedom from the need to be perfect means that I can fail. And maybe that's exactly what God wants me to do. What, what God wants to do through me. He knows better than me and he, his plan is higher than mine. My failures are also his failures. And if he allows me to fail, I know it's a good, it's for a good reason. It's kind of strange to think about, you know, that God would fail through me, but I think that he does sometimes. I was talking with somebody recently about this because if Christ is our life, then uh, that means that the, the victories belong to God, but also the failure failures belong to God as well. So that's kind of cool to think about. So in closing, I have one more story to share with you. On Friday, I was walking to Starbucks again because I was preparing for today. And uh, I went past the pregnancy center in our town. And as my thoughts were kind of meandering as I was walking, I started to think about the pregnancy center. And I was like, oh, they do such good work. You know, I, they are on the front lines, loving women and kids uh, who are in need. I would love to be involved in that ministry someday. I don't have time right now because time, because life is too busy. Oh, I wonder if that would be a good sermon topic. Back to, back to, keep going. Uh, I know I'll volunteer in a few years when life slows down and I have more time on my hands, ha ha. I could go and I could visit with the women and encourage them and maybe teach them some things. Hmm, then I'll have to apply. I wonder what they'll say when I apply. Am I qualified? They'll probably wanna know what I can offer them. Well, I'm a counselor, I'm a good knitter, I'm a mom, I know how to do bookkeeping. And then Jesus spoke to me and he said, is Christ in you? Then you're qualified. And I was reminded of the verse in Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. 
Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So what I want to ask you is, is Christ in you? Then you're qualified. You're qualified as a mom or a dad. You're qualified as a wife or a husband, a student, an employee, as a friend, a co-laborer with Christ. You are qualified for every task that you face. You don't need to get it perfect. You just need to trust Jesus with it. And he is faithful in everything. When you trust Jesus, whether you succeed with flying colors or you fail with flying colors, the battle and the victory or the failure belongs to Jesus. And we get to marvel at what he is capable of doing through us. I'd like to close in prayer. Father, again, I just thank you so much for this morning and um, for each person here. I pray that we would all set ourselves free from the need to be perfect and that we would just uh, hand that over to you and allow you to be our life and our righteousness and our perfection so that we can uh, change the atmosphere that we're living in just by trusting in you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us and through us and in us. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.